0: Conservative opposition parties in Australia have been ramping up the rhetoric around nuclear power, supposedly as a solution to two challenges, supplying baseline power to keep the lights on and tackling global heating. Yes, that's the Liberal and National Party coalition, the same people who for years in government went out of their way to stymie any move to reduce the mining and use of fossil fuels. Just think of the most recent disaster in Fukushima in Japan, and the constant risk that one of Ukraine's 15 nuclear power plants could be hit by a missile or shells in the war that's raging there. But there are environmentalists who have been sucked into the argument that things are so desperate that nuclear is the answer.
1: Some, including the pioneering climate scientist James Hansen, are campaigning in California to keep open a nuclear plant that is due to shut in 2025 so opponents of nuclear power, which necessarily involves uranium mining and the disposal of nuclear waste, can't relax. We need to be across the arguments against nuclear, ready to take on both the right and environmentalists who think that nuclear can save us from fossil fuels.
0: Help us with this, we're joined today by Dave Sweeney. Dave is a long-time environmental activist and Australian Conservation Foundation's nuclear campaigner. You're listening to The Sound of Solidarity, brought to you by Solidarity. We're a revolutionary socialist group in Australia, and if you'd like to find out more about us, our website is solidarity.net.au. I'm David Glanz, and I'm recording this episode on unceded Wurundjeri land in Narm, or Melbourne.
1: And I'm Tummy Gadir, also on Wurundjeri land. Welcome, Dave. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much.
2: Thanks for having us, David and Tommy. It's very good to join you. And I'm speaking today from Boonwurrung Lands down in uh, South Gippsland.
1: Wonderful. So first up, can you remind listeners of the track record of the nuclear power industry? There have been no thrills, but plenty of spills. Could you take us through the history?
2: Yeah, it's a um, history. It was born out of um, the atomic bomb. Um, the bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, after World War II, there was a push um, out of the United States called Atoms for Peace. Um, the destructive power that we've seen unleashed at the end of the Second World War can now be harnessed for humanity or mankind, as it said at the time. And it was this massive promotion that nuclear power was the energy source that would create um, electricity that would be too cheap to meter. was the phrase. um so massive support for um, the expanding nuclear industry in the U.S. and elsewhere, and also very much seen as needed to buy social licence for the continued production of nuclear weapons. These two have always been uh, sort of linked and had um, parallel fates and lives. Um Massive expansion in nuclear energy. Um, it was seen in the 60s as very significant. It was adopted in the 70s as an insulator against um, uh, the Arab oil shock when prices rose dramatically with OPEC. Um, and so there's been uh, a strong state-based push around the world, really, to push nuclear power, particularly in developed nations. Um, it's, uh, reached its sort of zenith, um, in the 90s, in the early 90s, nuclear power was producing about 22% of the world's electricity. Um, but all the way along, it's faced social license costs, community resistance, economic costs, and also its own inherent contradictions and expenses in impacts and safety and so that 22 percent high water mark has been steadily eroding nuclear power now produces under 10 percent of the world's electricity so if you look broadly at the arc of 70 years it's gone from destruction of cities in japan to promotion to power cities around the world to a peak of just you know touching a quarter of the world's electricity production to a steady decline because of community resistance, the inherent problems of the industry, and the spectacular growth of alternative ways of generating electricity to the point now where it's plateaued. There's about 440 plants around the world, but the majority of them are in um, just a few nations. Um, And particularly America is the largest uh, applier of nuclear power in the world. But it's quite an interesting thing just how many nations don't have it, And it's now in decline. But a thing, an industry that's in decline is an industry that often is at its most dangerous. Tammy, it's been that, you know, the cornered creature is more threatening. And nuclear power is is basically now in a profound attempt to redefine itself and promote itself as new and nothing like the old nuclear power. You know, 70% of nuclear power generation now in the world is in only in five countries. It's in the US and China and Russia and France and South Korea. And so that's 70% of less than 10% of the world's electricity. So it's a concentrated sector that is facing pretty much a significant threat and is mobilizing its considerable resources to fight back and reposition itself.
0: Before we move on, can you just also remind people about some of the disasters that are taking place? I mean, my life has been bookended by the wind scale spill uh, of radioactivity in the 1950s when I was a youngster, a very young youngster, and uh, all of us have lived through uh, Chernobyl and now Fukushima. So
2: what
0: what are the disasters that have taken place in the name of nuclear energy?
2: Yeah, um, there's been many. Um, and the disasters are both spectacular, like Windscale, Chernobyl, or Windscale, they changed the name to Sellafield as a marketing exercise to rebadge afterwards. Um, so, you know, Windscale, Chernobyl, Fukushima, their names, Three Mile Island, they're sort of apex names on this industry. But there's damage every day uh, through every aspect of this sector, like through uranium mining, the cultural and environmental damage of sourcing uranium, which is the fuel for the nuclear power industry. The impacts of even routine impacts of um, power plants see routine releases of radioactive materials into the environment and exposures sustained lower level but sustained and cumulative exposures of workers and affected communities we see a legacy of radioactive waste, a massive problem, requires isolation for many tens of thousands of years from people and the planet. Um No country on Earth has proven operating a final disposal facility. It's a problem from the first shovel to the last barrel, and the last barrel lasts a very, very long time. So there's spectacular accidents. Like when nuclear power runs well, We get routine releases of radiation at the sites and we get the build-up of high-level radioactive waste when nuclear power fails to run well we get a churnable fukushima so whether it's spectacular accidents of global significance or a cumulative warming of the frog in the pot this industry is no good
0: for anyone anywhere Despite that, we still have arguments coming from, as we outlined in the intro, both from the coalition and from people in the environmental movement who, unfortunately, have been uh, shifted in their arguments around those two points. That nuclear provides baseline power because the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine, and because uh, nuclear is emissions-free and therefore is a solution for, for global heating. Is there any validity in those arguments at all?
2: There's one aspect of the arguments that can be seen as positive. And that aspect is an awareness, a growing sense that we can't do business as usual, a growing sense that the impacts of climate change are increasingly upon us and increasingly apparent, and a growing sense that we can't keep burning fossil fuel we need to transition so that's the positive thing about the renewed nuclear debate Um, the arguments that are used um, uh, when you start to unpick them come apart pretty rapidly and it's predicated the whole debate is predicated on the false assumption that uh, renewables and energy efficiency energy conservation smart energy practice in both production, distribution and use can't do it. And they're the things that can and will do it. Nuclear power is an impediment to those things. You mentioned about baseline. There's a lot of talk about baseline because the whole concept of baseline was basically introduced by the large electricity utilities who have a plant running and to ramp that plant up or to drop that plant down, was more costly, more complicated um, than uh, suited their purposes. So you just kept it running 24-7. And therefore, you know, there was no demand matching from those peak periods of demand through the times when there's very little uh, because the technology, and the infrastructure, and the profit imperative was just keep it rolling. As a result, you build around that this sense of baseline, this sense of energy as a vulnerable thing and we always need to have it and it's got to be there and you've got to have baseline power. No, you don't. What you have to have is certainty of power. You have to have the understanding that you can, when you want to or need to, use power. The power is there to be used. But you don't need to be using it all the time or creating it all the time to meet that need. And I suppose the, the example for people in in the home is that like we don't leave our taps on. We don't leave our tap running 24-7 on the off chance that we might want a cup of tea or we might want to make a coffee. We go to the tap and we turn it on and then we turn it off. And it's all about access to rather than perpetual presence of electrical power. So the baseline argument is wrong in its assumption and it's also wrong in that sense that renewables can't do baseline. Renewables can increasingly and with improved storage technique and pumped hydro and others, that capacity is there. The question about this is a carbon free power source. So therefore, this is the only way that we can solve or the best way that we can solve or an essential component of solving and addressing climate change is a, like it's a sort of seductive argument in the sense of it acknowledges climate change and it says we have to do something so that appeals to people and rightly so but it's the wrong thing to do and it's also incorrect like this is not a zero carbon or a carbon free technology nuclear the part where electricity is generated in a reactor is uh, zero carbon that generation doesn't create carbon but every part that went before the sourcing and processing manufacture of the fuel, the whole process that went before the point of chain reaction, you know, moderated sustained chain reaction in a reactor containment vessel and everything that comes after the thousands of years of waste management, processing, storage, transport, etc. Every aspect of this involves carbon footprint. So you can say it's a lower carbon and certainly, you know, it's far lower than fossils but it is not zero and that is a misconception and a myth which is actively peddled or at least never actively corrected by the industry like it suits their image to have be seen as zero you know when you look at those two compelling points we need this because this is the only way that we can have permanent you know reliable power and we need this because it's zero carbon both of them are incorrect and Both of them fail to put this in comparison and compare the impacts of nuclear with its real rival, which is a suite of renewable energy technologies. And they are faster, cleaner, lower carbon, much more deployable, much more flexible than nuclear. So, of course, they're always going to pitch themselves and compare themselves against fossil fuel because, you know, fossil fuel is rightly on the nose and rightly difficult days, but rightly on the way out. Nuclear is not the solution, though, nor the one to fill the gap.
1: On that note, you were talking about how it's not true that even the running of the nuclear plant is uh, fully emissions-free, greenhouse gas emission-free, but if we think about it from the beginning of the production chain, what's involved in building a nuclear power station? And then you also touched on what's involved in its decommissioning. Can you say a little bit more about that? Because I think, well, you know, nuclear power plants don't just grow on trees or materialise out of the clouds, and they're also not going to dematerialize in the same way. So it'd be good to hear a little bit more about, about that phase of things, because they're enormous pieces of infrastructure. So that's not a trivial part of the whole process.
2: No, absolutely not. It's a huge part of the process, and it's a underrepresented and undercosted. Um, part of the process and when you when you talk about all stages of the of the nuclear cycle when people say zero emission like I've been to most of the uranium operations in Australia over the years and there's um plenty of diesel coming out of big yellow trucks and big scrapers and diggers and big mills um, at those places so it's not a light zero carbon footprint and as you say, um, the facilities themselves are massive users of Infrastructure, particularly water, consumes and contaminates a large volume of water, the nuclear industry, and also particularly concrete, which is a very energy intensive uh, material. So when you get into things like um, uh, uranium enrichment and the whole industrial um, architecture around the uranium and nuclear sector, their inputs are massive. The electricity inputs, the water inputs, the concrete and other material inputs are massive. And as you say, these are really significant pieces of architecture and infrastructure. And, you know, they're lasting pieces. And the thing that makes sure that they're lasting pieces and makes a great complicating factor for everything nuclear and a great complicating increase factor in cost is radioactive waste because that you basically dig up a mineral, you concentrate it and you form it into a fuel rod and that is a massively intensive and disruptive process and it's a transnational process. And then you drop that fuel rod, hopefully carefully, into a nuclear reactor and you get three years of electricity generation out of it. And that's it. After that, the decay rate of the fuel rod is unpredictable and not conducive to good performance. So after three years, the standard industry practice if you, is you lift those fuel rods out, and they now they now go and they're called spent nuclear fuel, but they're actually a high-level waste, and they remain active, like an active carcinogenic and mutagenic, so cancer-causing and gene structure co- changing threat for 100,000 years. So you get a thousand days of electricity and then you get a hundred thousand years of threat, security, environmental, human. So it's a pretty poor rate of return. Now, if the only way that we could generate electricity was fossil fuel or nuclear, this would be a very difficult discussion for environmentalists and many of us because it would pick those two things both of which are highly contaminating together but the good news is that we don't have such a binary choice we have a much greater suite of options and they have far less adverse impact they're not nothing's without cost or consequence like renewables still have a cost they still have a consequence there's mining of critical minerals there's transmission lines there's impacts on country there's siding issues. They've all got to be managed with respect and responsibility. But it is much easier to do that than to clean up old uranium mines, decommission nuclear power plants and wish away, which you can't do, radioactive waste. Like there is orders of magnitude more serious, the threats, and the problems, the complications and at every stage the costs blow out. We're seeing that at the moment like if we take the front end of this of the nuclear cycle the shovel the, the development of um ore and uranium the australia's longest running uranium mine was the ranger mining kakadu a lot of listeners will be very familiar and a lot of listeners might have gone and, and been part of the successful struggle to support Mira people and oppose mining at nearby jabaluka project and but ranger was imposed on the Miran people's land against their wishes, express wishes, opened in the early 1980s, ran through to the early 2020s. So 40 years of imposed mining, massive impact now, massively heavily impacted site, which is now being repaired. It's under active rehabilitation. But that rehabilitation bill started at about $400 million. It's currently tracking at $2.2 billion. And it's only heading north so it's australia's most costly and complex mine rehabilitation and that's one piece of this struggle that's one piece of this story now in that one piece it's very important and you know environmental groups are working with the Mira people and others to really hold rio tinto the company that is the majority shareholder in the ranger project really hold them to account to deliver the best possible outcome because for so often in the nuclear industry, as we've seen in many other highly contaminating industries, it's maximize the profit in a like personalize the profit and public, you know, publicize or pu- make public the cost. And so we're really working to see that there's not cost shifting and that there is a credible cleanup, but that's at the first stage. And at every stage, those issues about contamination and cost get more complicated and more extensive. And that continues right to the end where we look at waste. And the global waste situation is enormously sobering in the sense that there has been hundreds of billions of dollars spent. There is still no solution. The technical problems of waste management are vast. They are routinely underestimated and misreported by the industry and its proponents, who say the most absurd allegations or assurances of a mineral that is... Very serious threat over a very long period of time. And the closest that we are in the world at the moment to a solution is in Finland. But Finland in both process and pricing is an outlier in this. Like it's it's done that Scandinavian thing of listening to communities and modifying its proposal. That's not what happens in this industry around the world. This industry is cookie cutter. And it's decide, announce, defend, and it imposes on communities, and it lacks a social license, and that's why it's so desperate now to try and reinvent reinvent itself as a as a new, fresh approach to the problem of climate change.
0: Perhaps we can come back to the coalition. I mean, I think their position around nuclear is completely cynical and hypocritical. I think they're looking for ways of wedging the Labor Party, of posing as people who are concerned about global heating without actually doing anything. One of the criticisms of their position is it takes 30 or 40 years to bring a major nuclear power station online, and we need action on renewables now, and certainly in a time frame that's much less than 30 to 40 years. So the coalition tends to respond by saying that what it wants is, <coughs> are small modular reactors, which apparently they see a future of these being dotted around the country, almost like a, your local friendly uh, nuclear power station at the end of the street. Now, is there anything to this?
2: Well, first up, your assessment of the coalition's climate and energy policy and the role of nuclear in it is, is certainly one that, you know, I'm not even long as you're saying it. There's a high level of cynicism in this. When they had a decade in government, the coalition didn't advance any of this. When they had a decade in government, the coalition did nothing to meaningfully address climate change. In fact, just issued more and more permits for uh, fossil fuel and, and um, penalize people who opposed. So we've got the proven performance of the most recent decade in government, shoveling cash and favours to fossil fuels and doing nothing to advance nuclear um, and being sceptical and hostile to climate advocacy or activism. And then in opposition, suddenly climate change is real. And people who used to sneer about it are uh, hand on heart, giving lectures about it. And then nuclear is now the newfound solution that we must embrace in order to um, address this new problem that we've identified. It's quite breathtakingly cynical. It makes sense in one strange sort of political way for them because it enables the coalition to, which is a pretty, you know, ragtag group, really. It's a pretty broad church You could is a generous way to put it, but it enables the coalition to unite in a piece of policy architecture. So the the so-called moderate liberals who are waiting for their ice own energy moment can agree with uh, let's have a conversation on nuclear, as can uh, the most climate-sceptical nationals who talk a lot of wind but are very adverse to harvesting it. They can all agree on let's have a nuclear conversation. So it serves a political utility, it also serves that utility, as you identified, David, in, in seeking to find a wedge um, with labour and seeking to just play that sort of wedge politics. The real concern, though, with this politically is that the last thing that we need now is delay, distraction, confusion, division about what we need to do in relation to energy. Like energy policy should really be one of those bipartisan pieces of like, this is the stuff that keeps the lights on. So let's get it right and not score cheap points with it. Unfortunately, scoring cheap points is low hanging fruit and people are taking, you know, pillaging the orchard. And they're making deliberately in many cases and mischievously in many cases, this nuclear you know, conversation, as they say, and spruiking nuclear as a way of not having to make any fundamental change. Now, it's sort of the subtext is sort of it's business as usual because we're just around the corner. The There's the silver bullet of small modular reactors. So we'll just keep going on. We don't need to... Uh, supercharged renewables, we don't need to advance energy efficiency and energy conservation measures, we don't need to do a whole lot of work and thinking and investment into storage technology because we'll just keep going as we're going and then we'll just plug in. As they say, plug in and walk away. New nuclear technology at old coal plants or coal-generating ge- um, electricity plants and that's it. Robert's your radioactive relative. It's all fine. Don't worry, folks. Now, the trouble, well, there's a whole lot of troubles about that sort of approach. But the overwhelming one is that nuclear, like you said, the small modular reactors that they're basing themselves on and this whole thing on, they, they don't exist. There's not one in commercial deployment anywhere in the world. So just pause for a minute on that. We've got an alternative national government in a massively fossil fuel dependent and exporting, dependent and facilitating nation. And the best that they can come up with for climate and energy policy is don't worry too much because nuclear's around the corner. Now, I don't mind a bit of optimism, but I don't think it's a good basis for an energy policy. Like they're basing their thinking and our energy future on a technology that is not in commercial deployment anywhere in the world. And then they turn around to people who are promoting renewables, which is the fastest growing energy sector in the world and in Australia, which is proven, which exists, which is delivering power, hot water and cold beers right now. And they say, are your dreamers? You're not realistic. We're dealing in the real world here. Well, there is nowhere in the real world that is being powered by a small modular reactor, nowhere. And so we really need to call this because all this discussion about nuclear in Australia, no one is saying that we should build the nuclear plants that already exist in the world. It's pretty broadly accepted that those plants are high cost and high risk and that if you were starting an energy system, you know, Greenfield, if you weren't a nuclear state, it's a different thing if it's already established and you're keeping it you know hayband and hope and gaffitate around the pipes and keep it running but if you're starting from a clean slate so to speak you wouldn't build them that's the market consensus the political consensus etc so no one's advocating that we build what is real in relation to nuclear power they're all advocating that we build and believe in a potential technology That is unproven, not commercially deployed, and that people within the sector say is hundreds of billions of dollars and decades away from playing a meaningful role. So this collective sort of promotion runs a real risk. It wouldn't be so bad. It'd almost be amusing if that's all it was, but it actually is bad and it's anything but funny because it is getting in the way of what we urgently need to do to address climate change.
1: So small modular reactors are one of what seems to be in this bigger category um, that they're calling next generation nuclear power, i.e. things that don't exist yet. Could you speak a little bit about issues with other possible routes like so-called light water reactors? Maybe tell us a little bit about what those are proposed to be and what the issues are with them.
2: Yeah, so there's this whole range of technologies which the nuclear proponents are are talking up and small modular reactors, next generation, generation four. They're all terms to capture, as you say, a collective reference to a whole range of ideas that aren't currently in any commercial production or utilization. So I suppose we could go and run through what are the particular techniques and all that. But if people are really interested in that, that's a deeper dive. I think the real if you if you're keeping it just at a top line level, all of these multiple versions of new nuclear share the same basic reality in that they don't exist in any commercial world. They don't exist in any power production world. So like some of them have interest in physics, I can see why some people who are of that bent, of that sort of physics meets engineering meets problem solving set of characteristics in their blood, I can see why they might be intrigued and fascinated. I can see why policy people might wish it were so, but we can't deal with what we wish was so, we deal with what we need to deal with, with what we have at hand to deal with it. And in that sense, you can't go past the fact that none of these are producing power. All of these have either inherent or significant problems or constraints, and they all distract from, you know, whether it's, you know, Next generation reactors or fusion or what all these like let's use thorium reactors. There's hundreds of things, but they all come down to they're not fit for purpose. They don't exist and they're not going to make a difference. We're heading for a cliff on climate and we need to dramatically change the way we produce, distribute and use electricity. We need to dramatically drop carbon. Now, we're not going to do that by talking in a nuclear cul-de-sac or fast-tracking the production of nuclear waste. It's too little, too late, too costly, too risky, all of those twos, too slow, too everything. And the the one that's absolutely pivotal is that it's not there and it's not needed. We, have, we know what we've got to do. We've got heaps of renewable resources, particularly in this country, we're blessed with them. We have to super, we, you know, super enhance or elevate our efforts of capturing and storing renewable power. And, you know, sometimes I say, and people think you're joking, but I say that ACF, for example, is supportive of not supportive of terrestrial nuclear, but fully supportive of celestial. Like we wouldn't have life on the planet if it wasn't for the sun and the Sun is nuclear fusion reactor. Now, it's suitably far away. It's already in operation. It's got a waste management scheme. It's fully licensed and enjoys a high degree of social consent. So we should just plug into that one and maximise that. And anything that takes us away, this isn't to be anti-ideas, but it's to be anti-ideas being manipulated or used cynically for a political or corporate purpose to delay essential life-saving changes. To our planet and ourselves. So let's just scrap this sort of trickery and get on with what we know works and elevate it.
0: Labor has rejected the calls for nuclear power, which is something of a relief. They tend to pitch it very much around cost rather than around the danger. And I think one of the reasons for that, of course, is that they've followed the coalition down the AUKUS path towards Australia owning operating and potentially building nuclear powered submarines so labor's walking a fine line they're saying nuclear power stations don't add up but they can't be consistently anti nuclear because they're in favor of nuclear powered submarines are you worried that the subs project will open the door to a nuclear power industry despite what labor's saying yeah
2: very very good um, assessment of of Labor's uh, constraints and their approach, and yes, that is a real concern. In I think it was about 2017 or 18 at the University of New South Wales, there was a symposium which issued a series of papers into a monograph, which was the title of the um, symposium, and it was called uh, "A Nuclear Power Industry for Australia?" Question mark. Starting with submarines. And the basic premise of that was that um, there was a a very strong strand of scepticism, concern, and opposition to things nuclear in Australia. And despite uh, the industry working really hard and despite having the world's largest resource of uranium and all the mining palaver that went on for decades, people still didn't buy it. And so the idea was what people buy is... Defense. If you make something linked to defence, it's like, oh, well, that's for the defence of the country. That's what we've got to do. That's defence. And the major parties joined together with this bipartisan defence. Defence, you know, we'll spend more than them. That's basically the concern here. Now that there is the AUKUS deal, which was announced by Scott Morrison out of the blue. No discussion. No... Green paper, no briefings, no parliamentary scrutiny review, nothing, just an announcement by three leaders, two of whom have now gone from office in varying degrees of disgrace. Now, two of the three have gone and the AUKUS deal should have gone with them. Labour faced with the threat of a, you know, so-called khaki election and months of bad a uh, headline saying they were soft on defence. Within a day, in less than one day of being advised, Labor made an in-principle commitment to support AUKUS. Extraordinary. The biggest expenditure in Australia's history, biggest defence spend in Australia's history, made on an announcement, highly politicised media commentary without one iota of independent evidence assessment or review. Absolutely extraordinary. Really tragic. And then in March of this year, 2023, Anthony Albanese, many people had hoped, would walk back from that initial, oh, yeah, we're all the way with Hawke's," but instead he went to San Diego, drunk the Kool-Aid and wore the ABA to sunglasses. And then that was locked in, at the ALP National Conference in Brisbane in August, where the Defence Materials Minister Pat Conroy lost any touch of uh, reasonable behaviour and said that if you support peace, you'll support AUKUS. If you support human rights, you'll support AUKUS. If you don't support AUKUS, you're an appeaser. Like, none of this is balanced, rational. None of it is helpful. Every aspect of the AUKUS plan, and the more you see, the more you shake your head, it's really the wrong way for the country to be going. So that's the big AUKUS picture. What does that mean for nuclear? Is it means that nuclear proponents are emboldened, and why wouldn't you be? It means that nuclear is being normalised as a normal thing. Not necessarily a desirable thing, but part now of the fabric. Hence uh, the phrase cooked up somewhere and repeated widely of we are now a nuclear nation. We're not. But it's all about normalising. It's all about guaranteeing continued money flows. And we're seeing this reflected in skewed priorities in ARC and higher education funding and in postgraduate and doctorate research funding. Hundreds positions being made available if you look across other sectors they're not being recognized like that so there's preferential funding educational training opportunities are being fast-tracked there's all this enthusiasm there's conference after conference and working group after how to put in the tender for your business to leverage the AUKUS expenditure so all of this is both creating momentum, normalising and, reg- and seeking to reduce the lack of social licence, and creating a pool of skills, expertise, and perhaps most importantly, expectation. You know, they say if you're only um, tools like a hammer, then every problem's a nail. And if you're churning out nuclear technicians, they'll be looking for nuclear applications because that's what they think about and know about. So, yeah, it is a concern that this will lead to an erosion of domestic protections. It is a concern and a massive concern that it will lead to an opening and increased pressure for Australia, having under the AUKUS deal we are required to manage high-level radioactive waste, first time ever. Now, that's a potential real door opener for international waste management as well. And if you look, this week, as we're talking this week, in 1960, Britain launched its first nuclear submarine, the HMS Dreadnought. Now, 60 plus years later, HMS Dreadnought is tied up next to a dock in Scotland, along with all the rest of the retired British nuclear fleet. None decommissioned, because I don't know how to. Same in the States. And then we're joining that club with less expertise, with no comparable civilian industry experience to draw on. And so we're deeply concerned that it's a door opener, increased threat for Australia to host the world's waste, or at least our AUKUS partners' waste, and that it's all done under the guise of defence. Under the guise of national interest, national security, needs to know basis and you don't need to know. Nothing to see here, folks. Move along. And radiation and secrecy is a terrible combination. And whenever we see it, we see excess, abuse and adverse impact. And all the steps are there for problems, massive problems with waste. There are real steps there for this to be a gateway to further nuclearisation through nuclear power and nuclear promotion, and that's before we talk about the defence implications of linking ourselves so inextricably with the United States in particular or the costing implications as we're told that things can't be funded because of cost of living pressures. As people are hurting with housing and everything else, we're told to tighten our belts and just, you know, put up with it, take one for the team because cost of living pressures. Well, $370 billion is, is a lot of belt strain for a lot of people. It provides educational health, social benefit opportunities. There's so many better ways. I'm sure... Everybody listening to this podcast would sit there and on the back of an envelope, get some real enjoyment, thinking how could we spend $370 billion to actually help Australian people, global people, Australian nation, global environment. You know, you wouldn't build or buy nuclear submarines with all the associated problems. So sorry to go on a bit of a rant on that one, but not at all sorry to see AUKUS as a profound mistake that needs to be contested at every level for its human, environmental, industrial and economic and security and defence costs and implications, all of which are grave and adverse.
1: Yeah, I think it's very important for people to understand the current inextricability of the nuclear power industry and its relationship with the state and defense, like they're not separate things as things stand, and it's very, very challenging to imagine how they could be. Maybe if we could end on a gesturing toward a more optimistic note perhaps or or hopeful note, if nuclear isn't the solution to the problems that we face, which I think you've made a very compelling argument uh, for, what could you say a little bit more you did run through some of these Alternatives earlier, but what do we need to do to see a genuine and rapid transition to renewable energy? The
2: good news is that that is possible. It is happening, not at the scale needed, but it is happening and at scale, and it is possible. So that's the good news. And it's actually really um, essential. It's an existential um, challenge. So, what do we need to do? We need to basically fast track the use the production of electricity through renewable sources particularly large-scale solar wind and offshore wind as well we need to ensure that this will have cost and consequence because this has land use implications you have to have an impact on land and then you have to move the energy from production point now rooftop solar solves a lot of problems and all those things but you've got to move some big chunks of energy from production point to use point. So that's transmission lines. There needs to be real issues. There's real issues with critical mineral production, with renewable transmission lines, the siting and the impact, and with recognition and uh, recompense for affected communities and particularly First Nation communities um, that we don't want to just replicate another mining boom or another energy boom with the same patterns of imposition and dispossession. So there's real stuff that needs to be managed, but it can be managed. And it's basically fast-track renewables, build the power lines that in a sensible way that get the the, the power to the cities, stop having all these perverse subsidies that encourage fossil fuel use and that keep open and pay Fossil fuel companies stop the favours in approvals and in pricing mechanisms for fossil fuel companies, including in particularly gas, and seriously fast track in a sort of you know national security war cabinet style footing a uh, transition to responsible and sustainable renewable energy. That's the, that's the overarching piece. We're really blessed here in this country. Smart people. A good and often underutilized manufacturing sector, massive renewable energy resources and assets. And that's how we need to see them. Like these things are energy assets. Coal is just, you know, compressed and wood over time. It's ancient, you know, coal is ancient forest. And we sometimes somehow invest that with this sense of that that's somehow magical. Uranium's a rock. That's somehow magical. But water, wind, sun, they're somehow a bit lightweight and irresponsible. Old wood, good, you know. Radioactive rock, good. Those things can work. But wind, Mm. water, Mm. sun, Mm. we need to change that mindset in policymakers. They need to actually go, they're the living systems that will make this, continue to make this a living system. And the challenge isn't those things, it's navigating that so it doesn't then become a new greenfield opportunity for the most rapacious corporate capitalism to just expand into another sector. Can we do it with some social justice, some human and some ecological principles and guidelines and guide rails? That's enough of the challenge. We don't need, and it's not helped, by faffing around with other external debates that complicate and Delay and distract, and that they are impediments to effective action. There's one more sort of good news point, I think, on the on the broader nuclear front, and that is that it is an extraordinary industry, in that it catalyses, crystallises, unites extraordinarily strong and effective opposition in response. And if you look at it, Australia has the world's largest reserves of uranium, 35% of the world's uranium. And we have a rip and ship economic culture here, very mineral dependent and very get out of the way the doses coming through in our policy approach. And yet the uranium industry has been profoundly constrained. It's a minnow compared to coal or iron ore in volume, in assets, in employment, in royalty. And that's largely because... People, particularly First Nations people, have said no, not in our country. So many Australians over so long, marching, taking action, writing letters, you know, doing prayer vigils, locking onto corporate offices at AGMs, all those things have put a cap, have kept a cap on this sector here. There's been two or three very serious, well-resourced proposals for international waste dumping in Australia whilst i've been you know on this lap and they've been stopped against the odds you know against the resourcing and political patronage odds by community resistance and concern and opposition there's been half a dozen attempts to impose a national radioactive waste dump on unwilling communities and communities have worked together and found civil society allies and created uh and braided together a, a strong strand of resistance individually all of us should have been beaten. If you looked at the raw numbers, the political access, the legal access, the dollars, the pro-nuclear side had it on all, the, on all times. And it's the consistent opposition and creativity and drawing together our collective strengths that means we are having a nuclear debate in the absence of nuclear reactors. People have wanted to build them for decades. They haven't been able to. We're having that debate in the absence of national and international waste dumps, both of which have been pushed for decades and both of which have failed. We're having it in the absence of a massive uranium mining industry. There's a uranium mining industry, it's still too big and it's still too contaminating. But compared to what they wanted it to be, it's a shadow. So those things haven't happened by accident they've happened by design and work and hard work by people and by communities collaborating in creative resistance so there's two good news stories you know there's a there's a nicaraguan saying that the best victory is the war we avoid and it's a beautiful saying and we've avoided a lot of nuclear wars in this country by those sustained and successful resistance that's one good part of the nuclear story the other good part of the story is that we have a clear alternative which is renewables, our energy future is renewable, not radioactive. And the third point, and the point that perhaps we can take to pivot these conversations, because they're not going to go away, so we don't want to whack people over the head and say, no, you can't say nuclear, That how dare you, nor do we want to sit there and be polite and say, oh, yes, no, that's your point and it's really valid, because actually independently looked at, it's not and it's holding us back. So what we need to do is find a way to pivot that conversation with people of good heart and good head who are questioning what's the role of nuclear. And so the best thing about that question is it's saying there is no role for coal, there is no role for fossils, switch off gas. So nuclear, I reckon nuclear, celestial, yes, terrestrial, no. What do you think about renewables?
0: Thanks Dave, that's a, a really inspiring way to finish. We really appreciate your time today and we will be out there alongside you campaigning against nuclear uh, for as long as it takes and hopefully that's a short time
2: thanks sammy and thanks david thanks so much for the opportunity and and uh, all the best to you and to the crew who are listening to this solidarity <laughs>